The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Dana Perkins, and you're listening to Switched On, the BNEF podcast. Today, we have an interview recorded at the BNEF New York Summit with Jigger Shaw. He's an entrepreneur that founded Sun Edison, a pioneer in building clean energy projects for large companies. He later went on to found the Carbon War Room with Richard Branson, and most recently, he was the co-founder and former president at Generate Capital, involved in financing sustainable infrastructure projects. But away from business, he's also an author and a podcaster, and for the U.S. government, he worked for the Department of Energy before being appointed the director of the Loan Programs Office in 2021, which is what he's doing now. Senior editor at BNEF, Vandana Gombar, sat down for a chat with Jigger. Together, they discuss the current DOE programs and loans that are available to help companies with their clean energy transition. They also discuss the application process and what's expected of applicants, regardless of the size of their company. And they debate whether or not the utilities companies, ratepayers, or customers should front the costs for the new transmission capacity that's required. If you like this podcast, make sure to subscribe to receive updates for future episodes. And if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, consider giving us a review. For more information about BNEF's summit, like the one that this episode was recorded at, head to about.bnef.com forward slash summit. There you're going to be able to see the agendas and also videos from this event and other previous events. Please note, BNEF does not provide investment or strategy advice, and we've got a complete disclaimer that can be found at the very end of the show. But right now, we're going to get to Vandana's chat with Jigger Shaw. Okay, so let me just get the headline numbers out of the way first before I ask you the other questions. How much do you have available to lend today? It's upwards of $400 billion that we have to lend today across our three original programs. So that's the Innovative Clean Energy Program that we did solar and wind and geothermal out of, the Advanced Technology Vehicle Manufacturing Program, which is the uh, um, one that got Tesla, Ford, Nissan. And then we have the Tribal Energy Loan Program. So across those three programs, we have about $160 billion. And those are our three oldest programs. Then we have a new program called the Energy Infrastructure Reinvestment Program, really helped to design, to help like utility companies and other owners of existing assets make the transition from coal to nuclear or coal to solar plus storage or redo some pipelines that are currently natural gas and converting it to CO2 or hydrogen. So we're very excited about those programs. And then we also have the CIFIA program, which is CO2 trunk lines. So what part of this was the IRA jump? Yeah, so we had about $44 billion of total loan authority before the IRA. And then we got 100 plus 250 in the IRA. And then in the omnibus bill for 2023, we got an additional 15 billion for the Innovative Clean Energy Program. Brilliant. So the last time you spoke, the last time we spoke, you were talking about amplifying the message that here is a part of money come and take it. And you were talking to a lot of people who would be eligible, a lot of prospects who would be eligible. And I guess that was phase one of your program. Or are you still doing that amplification process or is that done? 
everyone knows what the DOE LPO does. Yeah, you would think so. I mean, we've we've done a lot of interviews and a lot of podcasts and other things, but I would say that we're continuing to meet people every day who don't know about the loan programs office, but are perfect are candidates for our, our program. And so I think, you know, we've hired an additional 40 people or so into our outreach and business development group. And now we're covering way more conferences and sectors, which is wonderful. And, you know, we're talking to probably about a half a trillion dollars worth of projects today. That number probably needs to get closer to a trillion dollars worth of projects over the next year or so. So we're constantly pounding the pavement. But the other piece I would say is that what's happened since we last talked was that we've gotten a lot of these conditional commitments out the door and then we've closed loans, right? So there were a lot of people who were just very conservative and saying, until until you've closed more of these loans, we're just not going to lean in with your office. And now that we've closed loans and we've gotten a lot more visibility uh, around the process, I think people are feeling far more comfortable expending resources to go through our office. So that's also very validating. Are you happy with the pace of approvals? Because that was also something that you mentioned that you want you want the office to be like more agile and, and track the time it takes between an application and approval. And that was one of the things that you were yeah. trying to address. I mean, I'm never happy, right? I mean, yeah. that's that's part of my personality. So I, I always think we can do better. And I think my team thinks it can do better. And so we continue to keep trying to find ways to improve. But I do think that at this point, we have hit an absolute standard, which is about out in line with the commercial sector. So in general, these really complicated technology-heavy loans take sort of six to nine months to get through the private sector. And I'd say we do them in like eight to 10 months, which is right around the same amount of time. So I think in general, we're quite proud of that. I think there's lots of ways we can improve and get even more efficient. The other challenge I would say is that our ecosystem continues to be weak. And so if you're an applicant who's just raised $400 million and you want to pay someone to help you get through the office, those teams are not very well set up at PwC or Deloitte or, you know, KPMG or some of the law firms or other places. Like they just, they atrophied over 10 years of dormancy for our program. And they've started the process of ramping back up over the last two years, but they're not there yet. And so for many of our ecosystem partners, they're overwhelmed with business. And so we need 10 or 20 more firms to set up an LPO division to help applicants get through our office. Because for some of these applicants, they're experts at raising equity and they have an equity forward CFO, but that equity forward CFO has never raised this much commercial debt. They've never put together a data room. They've never answered questions from a debt perspective. And so for some of those applicants, it's taking them a lot longer than it should because they're just not used to the process. My understanding was the kind of support that you provide loans and loan guarantees is kind of not available in the private sector space. But it's interesting that you're comparing your timelines to the private sector players. I agree with you that in general, they're not comparable per se. They're not really competing with us and we would never want to compete with the commercial sector. But when you look at like Santander and their leading of the Vineyard Wind proposal, that deal took over a year to close. And so I do think there are some of these complicated deals that the bank does when they've got very high profile clients that force them to do the deal. And and those deals are complicated and they take a long time to close. I'm comparing us to those deals. But for many of the companies that use our office, you know, these are growth companies who don't have some sort of like inside guy at a bank. We become their inside guy. Like we, The goal for us is to try to make this a more fair process so that everybody can take advantage of this. You've often spoken about, I don't know if you've spoken about it or I read about it, bridge to bankability. That, that's, that's the 
that's the yeah. gap that you fill. I wanted to ask you, which are the sectors where you feel that the requirement of this bridge to bankability is most urgent? Well, I'd say it's all of them. The goal here is for this to be a principle that really applies across all of the sectors where the International Energy Agency and others have highlighted sectors that are required to meet our decarbonization goals by 2035 and 2050. So when you think about the four reports that we've issued recently, right, you have the carbon management report, the hydrogen liftoff report, long duration energy storage and nuclear, those four definitely need it. The next set of reports we're coming out with are in the industrial decarb space, the virtual power plant space, though they definitely need it. And in general, what you find is is that we have a slightly different way of doing things than the Europeans do. But but in general, it requires roughly $100 billion of private sector experience to cross the bridge to bankability, no matter what the sector is. That's when you go through all four pillars, which is first-of-a-kind deployment, and then engineering excellence. And then you've got the learning curve, which we all rediscovered from you know in the 1930s. And then this Wall Street acceptance. And the $100 billion doesn't save you a gigaton of carbon, but it does get you across the bridge to bankability. And then now you're available to save a gigaton of carbon. I recently had a chat with the Hydro-Quebec team, and they plan to start exporting clean power to New York by 2026. The line is on, and they just got approval for the second line, which was held up in courts. So it took them 15 years to get all the approvals for the transmission line, which will carry that power. We heard about permitting issues at the summit at various panels this morning. So... As you look at the project proposals that LPO gets and track their progress, which are the systemic weaknesses that stand out for you? Well, I mean, weaknesses are a strong word. In general, the federal government wasn't the reason why those projects were slow. The reason the projects are slow is because the New York ISO and the NYSERDA and all these other players are like, do we want this line? Don't we want this line? Here's like 16 different political factions who have a role to play and have a voice they want to give. And so like, I'm happy for permitting reform to occur. And I think it's clearly needed. And even Bill McKibben like wrote about how we need to build again. But I do want people to recognize that for all of these long transmission lines, whether it's TransWest out of Wyoming or whether it's Sun Zia in New Mexico or Grain Belt that Invenergy is building, there's a lot of competing interests for these lines, right? And the way that the U.S. economy is is structured, each state makes the decisions for electric utility work. And so I understand that people want the federal government to step in and say, we will just force everyone to do these things, but that is not the democracy that we live in. And so I just want to make sure that people understand what they're really asking us to do and what limits they want to put on us. Now, the other way to solve this problem is through technology, which is where we come in. And we have the technology to reconductor all of the existing transmission lines and three the capacity of them. But that requires the electric utilities that own the lines to want to do that. And so, and it also requires the renewable energy companies who currently get all that excess capacity for free to pay for it. Right now, they're saying, we'd like to build our projects at $29 a megawatt hour, and we'd like to socialize the cost of transmission amongst all ratepayers. Well, guess what? That business model is over. And so if you want to continue to build 80 gigawatts, 100 gigawatts a year of renewable energy, well, you have to pay for the transmission required to do that. And guess what? That increases the cost of that power from $29 a megawatt hour to almost $69 a megawatt hour. And they don't want to do that. So then we're at an impasse. So I'm happy to take full blame 
for all of the things that's wrong with the entire innovation economy. My shoulders are broad enough to do that. But it doesn't solve the problem for me taking the blame. What solves the problem is people recognizing what the actual problems are, not what they pitch to the press, and then figure out how they work through them. These are real cost allocation issues. Do you want ratepayers to pay for them? Or do the customers who want that new transmission capacity have to pay for them? And these are there's arguments on both sides. I understand it. But let's not trivialize these conversations and say it's just permitting. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code radio20 at bloomberglive.com slash greenfestival. So since we are talking about increasing the transmission capacity, that's part of the plan. Biden has spoken about it. What's the way out? This debate can go on for a long time, but what's your recommended solution? Well, it's not my recommended solution. We have 10 reports we've written on this solution. And the answer is cost allocation. Like someone has to pay for this new capacity. What the utilities are saying is we don't need this new capacity. We can use coal and natural gas and potentially nuclear in the future within our existing transmission. And there are others that are saying, no, we need to 3X our capacity so we can build a lot more solar and wind. Great. Okay, well, then, then who pays for all that extra capacity? You can't just socialize it when the utilities are saying we don't need it. So then the question becomes who pays? And so we have to decide who pays. And then maybe they pay for 50% of the cost. Maybe they pay for 100% of the cost. But like, it can't be, well, we want it for free because that's what we're used to. And we're just going to stand in the queue, in the interconnection queue for seven years. Okay. But like, I, I just feel like sometimes we try to like say these things are simple to solve. And they could be simple to solve. It's like a straightforward answer, but it's not it's not easy. What do they say? It's it's simple, not easy. And that's true. We know what the answer is, but it's not easy to implement it. Do you have any projects in queue that are impacted by the interconnection queue? Not really. I mean, the loan programs office in general doesn't do established technologies, right? right? So solar and wind. Mm-hmm. So we don't have a lot of impact there. And frankly, most of the rest of our projects, whether it's the nuclear plants or the geothermal facilities or hydro facilities, mm-hmm. they actually have access to interconnection. So I, that hasn't been a challenge. But I, I do think we have a really big problem around like figuring out how we do big things right. right, and how we give people certainty around how to do it. But I do think that we can actually perform NEPA in a very efficient way. Our office runs NEPA for projects on private land, and we're able to do it in less than 18 months usually. So I think we can be very efficient about things. I think there are ways for us to work with tribes and local communities to make sure that their voice is heard. But I do think that we allow for properly permitting projects to continue to be sued. And sometimes you get more delays there. And so we should figure out how we prevent these projects who don't like the answer that comes out of the process from continuously delayed from lawsuits. So shifting the focus back to LPO, I had like one question uh, trying to understand what has changed in the last 12 to 18 months. If Elon Musk was starting his business today and came to you for an EV loan, what would be his chances of success and how soon would he get the money? Well, it depends on how prepared he is to get through the office. So we have of the 134 applications applications that we've received. Mm-hmm. I think I've said in the past about 35 of them are prepared to get through the office in six to six to eight months. 
and those we can get through. They have professional representation. They know how to answer our questions with 24-hour response time, all that stuff. And then we have almost 100 applicants who probably can't get through the office in that amount of time. And they need to hire professional representation. They need to like upgrade some of their staff to be able to like do commercial debt. They're experts in raising equity, which is great, but that's not the same as as us, right? So in general, I'd say, you know, like um, I think Syra Resources got through the office in four months because they were wow. really well prepared. And then there are others that I think were borderline two years. I think if you talk to Rob Hansen at Monolith Materials, he'll say that it was borderline two years and he wasn't ready when he first came into the office and mm-hmm. we helped his organization take a more professional uh, approach to under, the underlying risks of his project and his company is better for it. And we're equally excited about both types of applicants. So I don't mind spending 24 months with somebody, but I don't want their expectations to be they can come with less preparation and then get through the office in six months. So that was one of the things that I wanted to ask you. Are, are you getting, like, is the percentage of applications that are more complete, has that increased over the last few months or are you still? No. I mean, I mean, certainly with the 1706 program, we have more electric utilities coming in and other more established players come in and they have the staff to be able to do a lot of this stuff. So those are higher quality applications, but there's still a huge number of extraordinary entrepreneurs and innovators in our country who don't have the ecosystem support that they need to be able to get through our office efficiently. And so we continue to work on the big accounting firms and the big services companies and others to try to get them to set up an LPO specific division to help those companies. But we can't lower our standards to rush them through a process, right? Our standards are set by Congress. And so we have to get everyone up to those standards. And uh, we think that all of these people can. If we don't think they can, we tell them that and we encourage them not to apply. But for all the 134 applications we have now, we believe that they can hit our standards, but they still have to do it. You said it's not easy to make you happy. <laughs> but I was, uh, I, I really wanted to ask you in terms of pace of applications, I just looked at some data. So March 2022, you had 77 applications and 75 $6 billion in loans requested. And the yeah. latest update is the one I have is March 2023 is 130 applications and 118 billion in loans requested. So, yeah. and of course you have the sectors that keep going up and down. And the last time we spoke- Mostly up. <laughs> no, in terms of like the number one sector. So Yes, that's you know, true on a relative basis. Yeah, know. so that is not a pace you're happy with. Like where would you like it to be? Well, I mean, we have 400 and- 12 billion or so to put out the door. And so in order to put that much money out the door, we're going to need at least that much in loan applications and probably more than that because some people fall through. And so I think that the US has the ability to do big things. I think we have a tremendous number of entrepreneurs and innovators here that need us to do big things for their companies to be successful. But also we have a number of foreign companies who want to come to the United States for their technology to be commercialized. And so we want them to come here as well. And so I have a lot more work to do. Look, I mean, we have we have been given these resources by Congress. I don't think that they chose these numbers randomly. They believe that in order to unlock $10 trillion worth of investment, we have to do this first $400 billion to unlock folks across the bridge to bankability. And we've used these liftoff reports to help understand where we are on that continuum. So I'm very happy with my team. I think they do an extraordinary job and they work really hard, but we have to continue to do better to hit these absolute targets. How big is your team now? We're up to about 250 people. So it's pretty exciting. And we have about 100 new Fed positions that'll be posted over the next few months. And so we're excited about the long-term prospects of how we're building this place up as an institution. 
In terms of choosing projects, is, is scaling up a big part of the decision, the potential to scale up? I mean, to be clear, we don't choose any projects. What we do is say to people, do you have a project that fits within the four milestones on the bridge to bankability? And then they submit a part one application. And then we say, do you meet the statutory requirements of the loan programs office? And if they do, we are now equally excited about every project. So I don't care whether it's carbon sequestration or nuclear or hydrogen or long duration energy storage renewables. And I don't care whether it's a $100 million loan application or a $6.5 billion loan application. We care about both of them equally. Everybody who uses a loan programs office should believe, and we are certainly trying to make it so, that they will get a uniform experience no matter what sector they do or how big their loan application is, as long as they meet our criteria. And I do think it's important for us to be viewed as an independent arbiter of the statute. So if you qualify, we will prioritize you. That's really interesting. I thought there was some intervention on on your behalf. You're, you're just saying you, you meet the eligibility criteria and whether it's $5 million or $5 billion, you're kind of treated equal. Yeah, I mean, $5 million is more difficult. So we're doing the small deals like that in the Tribal Energy Loan Program. Mm-hmm. But I'd say the vast majority of the other programs and applications that we have start at roughly $100 million. There's no statutory minimum, so they can certainly come in for five. Okay. But there's like 3 to $4 million of cost associated to go through our program. So it's hard to bear 3 to $4 million of cost in a $5 million loan. And in terms of what has been approved, I just have a few headlines. Do you have a number or can you just share the headlines? As far as I know, it's probably three or four large projects which are improved. Approved? Well, there are three projects that have closed their loans and started drawing on the capital. There's a number of additional projects where we've done a conditional commitment, things like Lifecycle or Redwood or Monolith Materials, where they haven't closed the loan yet, but they're expecting to. And uh, so we're excited about that. And then we have many more applicants, mainly these 35 I was talking about that are fully right. prepared to get through the office, that I can confidently say they're going to get through the office over the next 12 months. Um, the remaining 100 depends on what whether they can get the right representation to really fill out our paperwork properly. Like I said, like we equally are enthusiastic for all of them to get across the finish line, but they have to meet our absolute standards. Like we're just not allowed to drop our standards to push them through. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. I was speaking to some bankers and and they were talking about, actually at the summit, (laughs) and they were talking about how supply chain stress is still visible in terms of lower disbursements. Is that something that you're also noticing? Is Is the pace of the actual money outgo slower than it needs to be? The deals that we're doing have a lot less impact from supply chains because they're first of a kind deployments or second right. deployments, right? You have much more supply chain impacts on solar panels or wind turbines mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. cable mm-hmm. or some of those things. And so so I'd say our projects are far less susceptible to supply chain delays because we're doing like the first six deployments and some of that stuff. So how would you sum up your like two, it's two years at the LPO now. Did they pan out as they ex- as you expected them to? And how you know you've told me you're never happy, so I, I I'm gonna 
put that into every question. <laughs> but what 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 has been the biggest challenge for you? Yeah, maybe I should correct that. I'm always happy, but I'm never satisfied. <laughs> that sounds better. Yeah. I mean, look, I think the first two years was about proving to the marketplace that we were capable of returning this program to its prominent place within commercialization. I think when we first came into office, there was a lot of high hopes, but we hadn't really proven to people that we were able to do it. Today, I think when you look at the diversity of projects that have gone through the, the office, whether it's manufacturing loans or project loans, Monolith Materials has natural natural gas as a input. So people were worried that we'd be anti-fossil fuels or whatever. I think people recognize now that we really are taking a very agnostic, dispassionate view of technology. They have to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And that is something that we do care deeply about. But they don't have to be from one tribe or another tribe. Like we're open to all great ideas. And then they do need to meet certain absolute standards. And we're happy to keep working on improving our ecosystem and all these things. But but I think that ultimately where we are now is that the marketplace has still not figured out how to efficiently go through our process. And so they believe in us. They believe that they'll be treated fairly by us, but they don't believe that they actually know exactly how to get through our process efficiently. And so we have a lot more work to do to help them understand how to do that. And most of their friends are not helpful. They're venture capitalists, they're Uh board members, they're bankers. Like none of them are actually helpful. They're wishing them well, but they're not actually able to help them. And so that falls on us because we believe very strongly that this is the future of American success. And so we have a vested interest in their success and we want them to be successful. Is there a personal, is there a challenge that was more personal that you may like to share over these two years? Well, in general, I'd say that I make commitments to people to get them to invest their time and ultimately money into getting through our office. And so it's at least 400 hours worth of work to get an application put together. Then there's staff time involved. And sometimes they have to pay third parties to get through this. And there have been times where they have not received what I believe to be a five-star experience through our office. And that bothers me because this is America's best and brightest. And I made personal commitments to them that they'd be treated fairly by the office. And some of them have experienced hurdles that I wasn't expecting or delays that I didn't expect. And I just think that in general, the US government and this program have to become a more predictable place for them to do business. And we're striving to get that done every day. But it is a personal failing that I feel, you know, emotionally, personally, because I'm making personal commitments to people that they're going to be treated fairly. And I want to make sure we honor those commitments. Amazing. And I did not know that an application, a complete application would take about 400 hours of preparation time. I mean, it's no different than a commercial bank. As someone who's closed over $100 billion of commercial debt, it's a lot of work to put together a data room with 300 files and all the work that goes into putting those together and all that stuff. But our average loan size is $900 million. Like 400 hours is not a lot of time to get a $900 million loan from us. That is a good ratio. So just to wrap up, any headlines that we can expect from you in 2023 that go beyond what you've already told me? You know, you're expecting these 35 applications to be through in the next 
12 months or so? Yeah, well, I mean, we have our first applications that have come in for the 1706 program. And we have our first applications that we feel really good about in the Tribal Energy Program. And so we're hoping that those two programs really come into their own this year. So we're excited about that. But we also have, I think, over $70 billion worth of innovative clean energy loans in here and over $26 billion worth of ATVM, Advanced Technology Vehicle Manufacturing Loans to get through. So we're, we're busy. <laughs> Thank you very much for your time. And it was a pleasure to hear your thoughts and all the best to the Department of Energy's LPO. Well, thanks for your continuing interest. It's really important. Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute, nor should it be construed as, investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.